Hello and welcome to the EU Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with the legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Rob Cowling, Business Development Manager at EU Mitchell, and this week I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague and Head of International, Brian Bletsoe, as well as Daniel casares Lorison, Chief Business Development Officer at First Law International, which is an elite-ranked global legal network and winner of the prestigious Global Network of the Year Award at the recent 2020 Lawyer European Awards. Today, we'll be discussing the findings of our latest UK powerhouse report through the lens of global foreign direct investment trends and the continued attractiveness of the UK market. We'll look at where investment is coming from, the sectors and regions that are benefiting most, and importantly, why. On top of all that, we'll let you in on some of the legal issues being faced by businesses and individuals looking to invest. So just a little bit of scene setting before we start. So foreign direct investment, or FDI, is defined as investment in an enterprise operating in a foreign economy, where the purpose is to have an effective voice in the management of the enterprise. This means owning 10% or more of a company. Around 1.5 trillion of inward investment was held in the UK in 2019, according to the latest Office of National Statistics figures. And attracting more FDI is vital for developing the UK's infrastructure, creating job opportunities and raising productivity. The recent budget announcement concerning investment-led recovery clearly highlights just how critical enhanced FDI is going to be for the recovery of the UK economy. Activity has, however, and understandably, been heavily impacted by Brexit and the continued COVID-19 pandemic. However, with the UK gaining more autonomy over its affairs, there are clearly considerable opportunities to invest, and some of which we'll cover during the discussion today. So let's start on the subject of Brexit. So given the UK exports and imports to the EU are still facing significant bureaucracy, what do you guys think the impact of Brexit has been on FDI. Brian, perhaps I can come to you first. Um, in your role as a corporate M&A lawyer, what, what are you seeing and hearing from clients um, and also our overseas referrers when it comes to, to Brexit and the impact that's having on, on foreign investment? Yeah, thanks, Rob. Um, I think Brexit was, was billed in the UK as a big pivotal event. And in the run-up to Brexit, in, in terms of FDI, there was inevitably an impact. I think there was some apprehension um, and some of the trends we saw were, were along the lines of certain of our European neighbours perhaps closing down subsidiaries, retracting into uh, into their home countries and, and maybe the, the European Union. But we also saw before Brexit um, activity where uh, you know European companies were looking to set up in the UK actually on a uh, proactive basis so that they had one foot on both sides of the fence, if you like. Clearly, Brexit happened at a time when we were facing a pandemic, so it's quite hard to read too much into whether Brexit was uh, the primary driver in terms of uh, an impact on FDI. And I, I think uh, certainly in the run up to Brexit, um, the, the, the market itself was slightly subdued. That said, though, there was activity, and I think um, there, there will always be interest in uh, in good entities, um, particularly in, in fields such as technology and healthcare. And it's, it's quite interesting coming out the other side of Brexit, because uh, clearly, again, we were in the midst of the pandemic. We are seeing a pickup in uh, 
in foreign direct investment on the ground as a as a corporate MA lawyer in the in 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 the UK. Um, particular activity from North America, uh, which is quite interesting. And uh, even speaking personally, I'm, I'm I'm dealing with three or four uh, acquisitions in the UK for North American, particularly US entities. Actually, they are investing into I, I think strategic areas. Uh, one of which is funny enough, healthcare. Um, one of which is uh, logistics, and uh, and I think that that is indicative of I think the message that although Brexit is there and it, it is posing challenges, as you know, to to British businesses trading into Europe um, and vice versa, the the English British market is still seen as attractive for uh, for reasons we'll perhaps discuss later on. Great, thanks, Brian. It's interesting that you mentioned the US, which is clearly one of the biggest contributors of foreign investment into the UK market. I, sure, I certainly think we we assume that's going to be the case for a good few years to come, and maybe we'll come on to the North America piece shortly. And interestingly, the sector piece with you touching on tech and healthcare, which are clearly significantly growing sectors of interest here in the UK and, and beyond the UK too. Daniel, if I just kind of chime you in on that conversation around the Brexit piece, obviously, First Law International's model is all geared around supporting general and in-house counsel of multinational companies located all over the world and with operations, activity and interests all over the globe. What, what, what are you guys hearing and seeing from a global perspective in terms of the clients you support on, on the impact of Brexit um, and what that's doing to their plans from a, from a foreign direct investment perspective? Yeah, Rob, I think it's, it's, I think it's very interesting. I have to agree with Brian on a few points that uh, to some extent, I think the Brexit situation has been muddled into the uh, the COVID situation. And so it's actually a little bit unfair to, to try to isolate them because they're very much an overlapping uh, event, <laughs> especially since it took so long to get to that uh, that notorious deal. But I, I do think that, you know, working with predominantly, I would say, U.S.-based clients, obviously we have some in Southeast Asia as well and some U.K.-based clients. FLI has always been well poised to assist them overseas. But in our conversations, Brexit has come up uh, for a few different reasons. I think one, uh, just like COVID, it's slightly considered to be a little bit of a stress test on on business models. It 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 starts to ask some questions about the utility of some of these jurisdictions to uh, a company's overall corporate direction and strategy. Um, and certainly, if you know, if we look at where we stand in terms of being a global facilitator to some of these accounts that we work with. We regularly get looped into conversations where we're asked for advice on foreign direct investment. And so if we look at Brexit, it changes that, the dynamics of what makes the UK uh, its own market. And so it, to some extent, frees it from some of the, the regulations and stipulations of the EU. And in so doing, can actually un- change the underlying definition of what makes the UK an attractive market. And so we start to look at uh, organizational strategy, and then we start looking at business strategy that may have implications for uh, organizational structure. It may also just have implications on the general attractiveness of the consumer market, um, which is one that's interesting as well. So I think as we go on, I'll always try to think of this the way that we discuss it with clients, which is what is the actual objective of the corporation, of the corporate strategy, and then how does that trickle down to the business units and the business entities? And then how would the UK, either prior to Brexit or post-Brexit, fit into that corporate strategy? And then through that lens, we go through the different pillars uh, 
which is what we'll usually do with these firms, uh, similar to what Brian will do in, in these exercises when starting to assist firms in foreign direct investment, which is to understand uh, their risk profile, trying to understand um, their asset allocation strategy, and, and with that, their risk appetite, because some of those transactions, given the fact that the UK has access to some of these uh, these markets, can be of high or lower risk. And then having that regular uh, um, review of that strategy in line with the overall directive. So I think that's that's a lot of words to say that if you're looking from a top-down approach, Brexit offers a lot of opportunities now that it's being redefined. It's almost like re- rediscovering a market for the for the first time again. And I think a lot of investors are are using that as an opportunity to to look through those trends. So I think it's going to be very interesting, and that's really part of this conversation is trying to get to those those granularities and trying to understand how, as an international investor, whether uh, in North America and the United States, or perhaps even Southeast or Central Asia, identifying which one of those vehicles may be useful, uh, why the UK plays a pivotal uh, and strategic role, and then how do we engage with those opportunities, and then who would be there to service uh, those opportunities. And I think this conversation is going to be very much an interesting one to uncover some of those issues. Brilliant. Thanks, Danny. That's really, really insightful. I think when I speak to to Brian, I think that we're certainly seeing and hearing those sorts of considerations when it comes to foreign corporates looking to come into the UK. Are you, Daniel, are you seeing kind of businesses look at specific levers to try and leverage some of that investment? Clearly, foreign exchange currency is is an attractive piece at the moment, given where the sterling's at and creating potential for, for lower deal values that they could exploit. Are, are you hearing that from, from foreign corporates? Yeah, I think that's always a consideration. Uh, you know, when these businesses are, are looking at their international portfolio, first of, first of all, they try to think about why the market would be attractive. Are, are they trying to access a new consumer group? So a new, you know, if there'd be a seek uh, group, that may be something that they're looking at. Perhaps they're following a competitor into a new market. So they may not have an established market yet, but because one of their peers is going into the UK, they may wish to follow. And so those motives for FDI, I think, play deeply into, you know, how much risk they're willing to absorb. I think certainly if I look at the fundamentals, uh, even just recently, I was looking at the uh, UK uh, bond yield curve to understand what expectations might be for inflation in the future. And it it looks relatively healthy. And of course, the idea is that we'd hope that the Bank of England will then increase those interest rates because it will be a favorable FX uh, difference. And that usually stimulates additional foreign direct investment. So although I don't like to uh, corporatize jurisdictions, I do think that it's important to understand that the jurisdiction that you know companies select have a variety of, of benefits. An obvious one is always going to be fiscal policy, but I think that's a naive view of a much bigger picture, which is going to be you know uh, being able to tap into human resource assets, understanding uh, perhaps even governments, governance procedures, find access to uh, data infrastructure, and also being able to understand that there may be a relatively short time where corporates can benefit from that arbitrage by coming in, investing in perhaps a time where we may consider the UK to be an under um, undervalued asset and then having that investment appreciate over time. So those are the different levers that they would think about. You know, obviously, corporate tax is one, but I think now with the yield curve looking uh, fairly positive and expectations for higher inflation, which most likely will determine the fact that the general population and middle income group may have additional disposable income, is certainly those positive trends that we're looking at. And that may just be the right time to buy in as it were. 
I think that's absolutely right, Daniel. I, I think, you know, there's no one size fits all. I, I, th I think all of these things are intertwined when it comes to, to strategy. I think, as I mentioned earlier, I, I think often um, a particular company in a particular sector will will look at a particular country because of the strength of um, the sector in that particular location and uh, often that is that is the driver. I, th I think with the UK, as Daniel touched upon, we, we have uh, the added advantage at the moment of perhaps a, a currency that's um, attractive to, to, to FDI. Who knows how long that will last for, how, how you know, rumours of inflation in the UK coming up, how, how that's going to affect things who, who knows but I think uh, all of these things are, are intertwined with um, with the actual target itself um, with with the uh, the workforce as Daniel also indicated and um, and other factors as well including the um, you know the appetite of uh, uh, the, the local government I think um, in that particular country to to investment and I think certainly Rob you and I are seeing the, the, the messaging from uh, the uh, the government bodies, the DIT, um, the CBI, which uh, represents British industry, as we know, all of the messaging is, um, you know, that, that, let's look beyond Europe, the world's a big place. And let's, uh, as we'll come on to later, let's look at some of these trade deals that have been put in place. And I think there's a there's a lot of excitement around, around that, actually. Yeah, absolutely. There's clearly a, a bit of caution to that, obviously, with um, issues like the emerging variants from a COVID perspective and uh, the longer term impact of Brexit and what our relationship looks like between the UK and the EU and quite how those trade deals work out and where they provide some real benefit. But but no, I agree. I think we are absolutely cautiously optimistic from a perspective of the, the wider attractiveness that the UK can offer now um, as part of its shift away from, from Europe. Um, so let, let, let's move away from Brexit for the time being and, and focus up more on sort of the, the, the future perspective of, of foreign investment into the UK market. So clearly foreign direct investment has dipped in the UK since we left, since we left Europe and on the, as a result of the COVID pandemic. Um, but that's followed almost a decade of considerable growth. Do you think we're going to see growth return? in the immediate future um, and, and kind of what's your thoughts as we look ahead to the next five years? D Daniel, maybe I'll come to you first. And uh, we, Brian and I, had the benefit of sitting on the FLI Spring Conference where you covered some of the, the global economic trends that, that are coming through in the data. And that seemed to suggest that the market was bouncing back strongly. Um, there was a return in confidence amongst investors um, and that deal value was more than doubling. I think they're all really, really encouraging signs. Um, and I just wondered if you wanted to go into that in a bit more detail and provide your perspective on on the future prospects of foreign investment. That's yeah, that's right, Rob. I'd love to. It is it is really interesting, I think, because obviously we know that every 10 or 15 years or so, there's always going to be a market correction, whether that be on capital markets, equity markets or so forth. And that just goes to reset these uh, these market values for these assets that are trading. And I think COVID has been a good stimulus to that, just to, to fact check and to proof business models once again, uh, remind uh, businesses that are overly leveraged that there are, of course, debt obligations. But I think overall, we've looked at, at these trends and, and it's a bit of a spring. You know, we've I think uh, a lot of companies have delayed transactions in fear of not being able to attend to them in the best way that they would under different circumstances. And then all of those were in essence, released during the last couple of quarters of 2020, and especially the first two quarters now of uh, of 2021. 
Certainly, M&A activity is high. Uh, IPOs are also high. We can talk more about those sub-industries that are the, the predominant makeup of some of these, uh, uh, these winners, we might call. But that, that's not all. I think the idea is investor confidence is returning. And I think that's important. If you look at you know, the VIX, which is the level of volatility in markets, if we look at where investors are investing, because of the low interest rates, they're looking for returns. And those returns are going to come whether in, in bonds but in, in or even higher risk appetite vehicles like equities. And then, of course, there's the whole uh, NFT blockchain and crypto world, which is emerging as well. And so these these new uh, these new vehicles show a tremendous amount of opportunity. But that's uh, you know an indicator of a much larger picture. And I think now that I think the, the things are changing a little bit, and, and the UK is is also opening up for business, and 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 you know things do take time to settle. Uh, we've talked about how it's following almost a decade uh, of growth, and how intertwined it is with the EU. There is going to be a little bit of a period where the UK may need to reprove. Uh, itself uh, to the international markets and, and throw a few signals. Uh, and I think like everything else, investors are also looking at comparables and they may compare uh, other jurisdictions, but also other companies in their industry or uh, companies with the same risk appetite and seeing who's going to uh, blink first and who's going to start investing more heavily. But Rob, you know, I'm always cautious when I talk about FDI that usually FDI and then wholly owned subsidiaries are what we'd consider really end of the line investment activities. You know, you should, we should be looking at levels of exports. You know, how many joint ventures are we seeing? Are we seeing a lot of, you know, e- expenditure in, in some uh, imported goods? And then that goes, you know, nicely into bilateral trade agreements and so forth to try to stimulate uh, uh, income both ways. But I think there's always a progression. So there may be a little bit of a, of a, of a time lag, if you will, between these initial exporting opportunities and development of local agencies or licensing at a domestic level all the way until we see perhaps more robust levels of FDI and then complete wholly owned investments in the UK as well. So I'm very confident, uh, in fact, and I, I think that the UK will will hold well. And this this particular instance where we may see a bit of a drop is still attractive because then we'll see, like you said, local and and federal governments use their levers, whether that be you know quantitative easing or uh, reduced interest rates, to try to you know attract additional investment, and uh, and that investment has several purposes. It may be to service consumers, and it may be that in fact the UK's assets, you know, human resource, uh, capital, uh, access to financial markets, uh, even as uh, as a rule of law, which we can talk a lot about will yield greater centers of excellence in the UK. And so the companies may decide to house certain functions of their business uh, in the UK, which are highly specialized, that they can derive really, really good value from, as opposed to setting up a duplicate of a shop they may have somewhere else. So I think I think all of those trends come into line, but I think overall the trend is is positive and, and it accelerates quite uh, quite quickly once it starts. And I'm sure Brian can speak more to how busy they are <laughs> at the moment, which is a good, also a good indicator. Thanks, Daniel. I think something something that really interested me, what you said there about the UK having to prove itself, having left the European Union. And it's it's interesting, a couple of sort of webinars I've been on recently held by people like the DIT and the International Chamber and the CBI have really been talking up how imperative it is that the UK has got a strong and a consistent narrative to the rest of the world, which 
British businesses can get behind an advocate when it comes to why the UK should be seen as a global destination of choice for trade and investment. Because I think if you go if you go back three to five years or so, three of those sort of key decisions for coming to the UK revolved around our membership of the European Union, one of the largest single markets, our welcoming um, and open immigration system, and our stable government. Now you could argue that all three of those are are up in the air at the moment. Um, so actually, what 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 does our narrative become, and what does the UK really put some focus around in terms of its narrative to the rest of the world as to why now is the right time to invest and what is the right thing to invest in. So I think that that's really interesting that you touched that you touched on that proving piece because I think I think that's absolutely right and the UK has to get that message together and has to get it out quickly because I think there is a window of opportunity that the UK has to exploit the wider disruption that's happening in Europe um, and start to really exploit some of the wider potential beyond Europe that, that Brian touched on earlier. Um, Brian, if I, if I can come to you from our own perspective um, as a firm and particularly within your sort of corporate department, how are you How are you seeing businesses react to the post-Brexit world and their appetite around foreign investment? Is that is that increasing? Are you guys Are you guys busy? So yes, we are. We are. And We've been consistently busy in the lead up to to, to, to Brexit and, and and following on. I think that the pitch has slightly changed since Brexit. We are speaking to clients about potential landing points in the UK and and, and starting to uh, to give comparisons compared to other countries um, in, in terms of those landing points. And clearly, we didn't have those discussions before before Brexit. So that that's quite a new. A new development. I can think of two recent examples where we've had those discussions in the UK has still been chosen. One was for a, uh, a chemicals manufacturer who was looking at mainland Europe and also the UK. And actually, what I don't think the final decision has been made here, but uh, what what the client seemed to particularly like about the UK was uh, one the the free ports, uh, which is clearly a very new concept that's only come in in the last budget, I believe, since March. And I think that is a new concept, but they were they were looking at a site in one of these free ports to, to, to basically have a manufacturing facility and to use that manufacturing facility to uh, to export around the world, including to, to Asia Pack, which was quite interesting. I think there's a little bit of a um, Lesson to be learned there, because certainly in the UK press in the, the last week or so, there's been uh, stories around perhaps the the, the free ports not being as tax advantageous for certain jurisdictions as others, um, because the trade deals, which I'll come on to in a minute, perhaps have been written in a way which 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 rule out the use of free ports. Um, but uh, that still is, a, I think, an important plank of uh, government policy to develop these free ports around the, the UK. Um, and to encourage foreign direct in, in investment. I think the trade deal is also interesting, Rob. Um, we're, we're seeing this again at first hand, speaking to the DIT and the CBI, who are really trying to educate British business around the, uh, the, the, the trade deals. We had one, actually two instances of Canadian businesses um, really uh, sit up and take notice of the trade deals. One instance where they had a, a European base already um, and because of the Canadian-UK trade deal they, they wanted to establish in the UK, they saw that, saw that as a, an advantage. The second was a, a, a dental manufacturer in uh, 
component manufacturer in in Canada who are looking at the UK. And I think I think the trade deal is certainly a component there, but it also throws up, I think, sort of verification of what Daniel was saying earlier on, on the other considerations. You know, we we shouldn't underestimate the uh, the, the rule of law point. Um, the, uh, the the tried and tested nature of uh, the UK market, the um, the size of our market in the UK uh, is also large, and I think it's a it's a it's a natural natural landing point. I think for North American businesses still, and they may look at Ireland, and, and a lot of businesses do set up in Ireland. But it, the reality is that Ireland has a limited labour pool. You know, things like housing are hard to get when you are sending your employees over from, from, from North America to uh, the UK, you will look at things like quality of living and schools and all the sorts of things that uh, maybe we don't necessarily talk about in our strict uh, business sense. But I, I think also language, language is important still. And although clearly our, our continental friends, use of the uh, English language is, is, is strong, um, that there is still that, uh, that added advantage I think the UK does have. Um, but you know, I, I think I mentioned earlier the uh, the healthcare business setting up in the UK. Again, they 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 they're taking over a laboratory over here as the start of their European campaign, and they they just felt the UK was just the natural starting point. They they had very strong connections with uh, British businesses over here already, partly because of the reasons we we've just mentioned. It's interesting, Brian. The majority of those examples that you've given there are US and North American based. Uh, I mean, I touched on it earlier and our our reports clearly suggest that the US is the largest investor into the UK when it comes to FDI with about 45% of that actually going into the financial services sector here in the UK. What what do you what do you think makes that sector and the UK so attractive um to US entities? Da- Daniel, maybe you can extend on a couple of the examples that Brian gave there in terms of the cultural alignment what, what what are you seeing and hearing from your perspective as to why the uk is attractive from that perspective absolutely well i 100 percent agree with brian i think the cultural fit is one that should not be undervalued or, or put aside i think that's very much a key decision and a key criteria that's looked at it's very high on that index and you know there's an old to say philosophy or perhaps a, a strategic mindset when it comes to international expansions there's a couple that i'll touch on i think the first one is is if you look at um, the Uppsala expansion model. It very much follows that global expansions seek jurisdictions that progressively, of course, become more and more uh, global and foreign to the original host jurisdiction. But the first ones that uh, companies will target are markets that very much are similar uh, to their own. So we talk about this element of psychic distance um, in, in that model where very much as Brian said, the uh, you know the North Americans, Canadians, and I think Americans overall will perceive a level of additional inherent trust that exists uh, simply because obviously language barriers are are not as uh, as difficult. Uh, obviously, the common law is extremely important to them. I also think that the rule of law, and when we talk about arbitral seats. I think London still uh, remains an extremely important point uh, for uh, arbitration and will continue to do so. So I think that's not necessarily one that's that's seen tremendous amount of um, lack of popularity. And so, uh, you know, overall, you look at these cultural elements that are going to be able to assist companies with making those rules of thumb decisions. If you look at 
is an old scholar called Hofstede, uh, his cultural dimensions, as it were, in trying to understand fits between different cultures. And I think the UK still very much does have a culture which we'll see a lot of fit with with the United States and, and Canada. And that particular investment in, in the financial uh, services sector, most, most economies will go through that, that transitionary phase as you move from primary to the secondary to the tertiary sector. And I think going back to that idea of centers of excellence, I think the UK still remains an area with a tremendous amount of uh, not only access to higher education and a highly skilled workforce, but it still remains a hub for, for, fi for finance uh, amongst other industries that, that use that infrastructure. And as a general point on that, I think it just makes it a lot easier for investors that share a similar mindset, um, you know, being able to, to get onto meetings and, and being able to very quickly uh, build rapport with a counterparty, whether that be for an acquisition, or takeover, or a, a partnership of some sort. And so that, that certainly will add a lot to, to that, the speed at which some of those deals can occur. And, uh, and overall, I think that that relationship goes a, a long way. And, and the same goes for relationships with other perhaps European counterparts, just because of historical relations like France and Germany. But the, the U.S. has always been a big trading partner and will continue to do so in the future. A another point to just add to that is, of course, that the U.K., whether we like it or not, not that this is a, a UK advertisement, uh, but I do think the UK still does add a bit of a seal of approval and a bit of legitimacy, especially in markets that are historically difficult to to gain information on. Uh, I think the UK still has access to good infrastructure when it comes to uh, transparency, uh, uh, ethical governance, uh, and is still going to be a thought leader in that space for quite some time. And if you're an investor and you're thinking about uh, jurisdictions that offer good promise for your business. I think the overall change in ownership, as Brian mentioned, the investment in the in that laboratory, uh, you're, there's going to be a lot of businesses that may have moved out, which leaves uh, existing logistics and and, and some of those uh, uh, existing uh, departments and businesses uh, and infrastructure available for investment immediately. So you can have a lot of uh, opportunities to, uh, you know, brownfield operations to come in uh, and, to, and to take over. So a few comments on that, but I, I think, you know, fundamentally that cultural fit is going to be a prevailing uh, theme, uh, even if it seems a bit trivial, I know, but it, it is something that investors will look at, especially when it comes to confidence and trust. Yeah, I, th I think that's absolutely right. And I think if, if we look at that fit piece that you just described there, Daniel, around, around particular sectors, of interest at the moment when it comes to investment. Clearly, we've touched on financial services there from a US perspective. You both mentioned tech and, and healthcare previously or during this conversation. But perhaps I can just ask you to, to give a, a bit more detail behind where you see the key sectors being that are attracting investment at the moment um, and where the opportunity lies. Brian, perhaps I can come to you first. You mentioned tech and healthcare earlier. What, what's your perspective on those two sectors and, and any others that you think are gathering some interest and momentum at the moment? Yeah, but, but perhaps, Rob, before I answer that question, I'd just like to comment on one thing. I think it would be a mistake to assume that most of the activity is solely related to North America, because it isn't. And uh, I can think within our national team of uh, Australian, West Indian, Scandinavian entities, that are uh, Polish entities that are acquiring in the UK. And clearly, uh, you know, we are talking about FDI into the UK at the moment, but 
the activity from the UK into other jurisdictions is also is also happening all the time. And I think um, businesses will continue to do that no matter what political environment there is. If they see an opportunity and it fits their uh, growth plans, they they will they will do that. But I, I think um, interestingly, Rob, I think the sectors you've just mentioned are prevalent. For instance, the West Indian client we can think of was was, was looking to invest into the wealth management space. I know Daniel's got other examples of, uh, of where clients are looking at the wealth management area. I think the tech space is a very interesting one because I think the uh, the UK tax regime has been particularly um, structured over the last 10-15 years to really encourage entrepreneurial activity, investment by by, by investors, by angel investors, or through particular tax schemes to, to encourage startups. And I think the, the, the sort of environment here, that sort of environment where there were significant tax breaks on investment into startup companies, has particularly helped the, uh, the, the tech sector. And I think I can think of one example for my own client base where we acted for a, um, a startup in the financial services space, in the, in the FinCap space in 2014 and, and now it's it's raising a significant amount of uh, money in its uh, in its fourth fundraise and, and is worth a significant amount of money and i think i think the uk actually that that's that's connected to the financial services and insurance sector i think the uk is particularly well set up in those areas to to encourage entrepreneurial activity investment into that activity with the knowledge that those companies can reach a certain size and probably attract overseas um, acquirers or, or even go to, to the well-established capital markets in the UK. So I think um, I think the whole sort of system from, from start to, to end for an entrepreneur or for a group of entrepreneurs, a group of investors, is pretty well set up in the UK. And I think that will continue. Um, we're not sure whether the tax breaks around some of these um, startups will continue as, as the UK government, like most other governments, want to increase their tax revenues to, to, to pay for COVID. But, but certainly at the moment, I think that's one of the reasons why areas like the tech sector and the healthcare sectors are particularly attractive for the moment. I think it's a, um, a consequence of a, a decade, 15 years, 20 years of, uh, of activity in that space. Yeah, I think that's got to be right, Brian. And I think if I go back to what I said earlier around the whole UK's narrative to the rest of the world. It's interesting if you look at the press recently that certainly one of those themes is is gearing towards technology, innovation, and digital. I think the UK is positioning itself as a as a centre of excellence from that perspective, given how well regulated it is, um, how how substantial the fintech space is, our adoption of artificial intelligence, industry four, for example, but but also the potential introduction of this digital currency into the capital to try and counteract some of the funds that have been driven out of the financial services space in London as a result of of Brexit. So, and I think the fact that Rishi Sunak has announced a, an actual task force to start properly looking at that and how that becomes part of that investment recovery piece is really interesting and certainly points towards the travel of direction in terms of the role tech digital innovation will play as part of the, the future growth of, of the UK. Um, Daniel, um, what, what are your thoughts in terms of sectors, sort of building on what, what Brian's just said there? Well, I agree with Brian. I, I think, you know, tech, uh, you know, cybersecurity, uh, you know, the healthcare industry remain very warm markets. But I think that doesn't exclude the fact that 
there are other hidden icebergs that we don't know of yet that are in the making. Because oftentimes it is a bit of a longer term horizon discussion. And, and, and you're right in saying that the efforts over the last 10 years, to some extent, are only showing dividends now, which is why you're, you're seeing that long term horizon for some of these industries and why they're warming up. But it's inevitable that technology continues to be a, a scalable and sustainable business model. But equally, it's it's not surprising because you're still going to get a very, very robust intellectual property portfolio uh, in the UK. You're going to get protection for it. You're going to get R&D tax incentives and tax relief. You're going to get high quality human resources uh, and, and, to, and human capital to assist in the development of, of these items. And a lot of, I think, uh, partnerships with higher education as well. And the lack of institutional voids, which is what you'll 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 find in these emerging markets that may offer perhaps discounted labor or grants or additional uh, incentives to join these markets may be very attractive in the start. But I think that companies then fail to recognize that there are always then going to be potential liabilities for taking those taking those deals and going to those markets. I think there's a there's a big place um, for those for those markets, but you know, of course, there's institutional voids, which I think the UK doesn't necessarily have. And just an example of that, we had a business uh, that was looking at to, to expand uh, into the EU. And so we went about by creating a matrix of these jurisdictions and trying to score them against various criteria and creating an index um, for them to, to do it based on their risk appetite, uh, you know, how closely they wanted to be involved with certain industries and whatnot. And you know, in all different scenarios we looked at, I think the UK always came about top three or top four. And so that combination is a good hedge because it, it gives you some peace of mind that these mature industries like finance, banking, insurance, uh, and the regulatory confidence that you have in the rule of law, as well as how strong the arbitral seat is, provides businesses with reduced you know, trickle down effects of uh, risk and compliance issues, which you may find in other markets that perhaps don't have that infrastructure built up yet. So I think when you're assessing it, of course, risk adjusted return is going to come into play. But, you know, looking at it from from that from those different lenses, I think it's it's fairly self-evident to recognize that sometimes a quick buck isn't necessarily the best buck because you may have to pay that out in expensive a litigation or having to deal with the union somewhere or having to deal with potential, you know, serious fraud office uh, issues or from the Department of Justice, for example, when we talk about uh, some of those compliance issues. So I think that there's absolutely truth in that. But I also don't want to disregard that there are other industries that are just starting uh, and those that are still quite inefficient and perhaps not as regulated as some of the mature ones uh, are, are showing are potential avenues that in five, 10 years from now, we're going to discuss as the obvious industries of investment. But always looking at that in different time horizons is going to be the key. Is it, are you a short-term investor, medium-term or long-term investor? And, and where do you think the UK will be in five, 10 years? And are those resources that you're, that you're trying to invest in now at par or undervalued? And if so, where's that return? And just a final note there on, on transparency and rule of law, it's, it's always been evident in capital markets that the more information you can get about uh, a company for an investment, usually via financial reports, for example, usually gives you a better estimation of its real book value. And so analysts are always looking for companies with more data because then they can provide a better rating 
And that means that the cost of capital is less. So the discounted cash flows are also discounted less heavily. And so you can get a better sense for what the true value of those assets are. And there have been other issues in jurisdictions where investments just don't pan out the same way they would hope to, because although they seemed attractive at, at the start, relying on some of that information uh, doesn't always yield the best results. So there's a lot there to, to, to look at, but I think those other elements that we'll talk about, and I think this really goes in well with looking for counsel when you're when you're starting to invest, is also making sure that you're being represented correctly and you have the right partners locally to assist with some of that investment activity and compliance and risk will come up. And I think it should be a part of a conversation when you're trying to identify um, those jurisdictions. Yeah, I'm pleased you touched on the the risk and compliance piece, that horizon scanning, doing your proper due diligence as part of that process. And and Brian, I'll invite you just to to comment on that, if you will, from from a perspective of what, what we see as being critical when it comes to that investment piece and the project management role that we that we undertake on behalf of foreign corporates coming in? Yeah, I, th- I think there are three main ways um, entities normally come into the UK. One is a startup, uh, just just setting up a perhaps a subsidiary of their um, of their parent company, and I, I think uh, there we are able to sort of guide a client through that process. It's as we probably know, it's very quickly, very quick to form a uh, a UK entity. You can do it within minutes. Um, there's no need for local directors, which uh, some jurisdictions, uh, there's no minimum share capital. So it's all very easy. And uh, I think, again, that's public policy to make it easy for uh, for overseas entities to have a UK, a UK presence. The, the second route to market is perhaps a joint venture. Won't really touch upon that. All of these areas obviously raise a lot of, a lot of issues, which we advise in detail on. So just, just really looking at the... Uh, and third is, is is to acquire an entity. Um, I think in all of those areas where where we see Owen Mitchell's role is really to try to understand the client's um, goals, to really try to explain, uh, because we believe we've got a lot of cultural intelligence, to really try to explain the differences between the UK model and perhaps the home model from that uh, for that client. Things like employment law is very different, for instance, in the UK. Uh, to in the US, but the UK employment regime, although it is uh, regulated and uh, complicated, um, it is not so restrictive as in some other um, territories. And we're able to give that sort of perspective to a uh, to, to to a to a client. I think um, we try to bring a lot of uh, local knowledge. We're a national law firm. We've got offices in fifteen locations around the UK. We are able to advise often clients where they are setting up, for instance, in the Northwest from our Manchester office and bring local connections to that, be that accountants, um, because they're clearly a very important partner um, for us on the legal side and for the client in the the longer term, Um, be that tax advisors, be that property search agents, uh, because often Client will want the bricks and mortar site, and uh, having that local uh, knowledge um, to try to find that location is important. Also, we will know people like recruitment consultants, so to try and find staff on the ground. So, I think our role is legal. Um, we can describe the MA process, the, the English process, as we know, is very similar to the North American MA process, but it's different from many other countries' um, processes. So where we're advising a German client on the 
on the on the process here that the considerations will be very different from from describing the process to a North American compliant. So there's the legal aspect. There's the if you like the um, uh, the chaperoning aspect, the cultural aspect, and I think the local knowledge that we can bring. But all of these subjects are detailed subjects, Rob, and uh, you know we would we would really get under the uh, under the bonnet and, and explore all the different areas. Okay, so just to wrap up, finally, um, if you could give a business or an individual one piece of advice um, with FDI in mind, what would that be, Daniel? I think it's a it's a tough one, but I would say speak with local council because they will be a very good point of contact to direct you to the right uh, local partners that may be able to assist. And I think oftentimes legal is seen as, as as a potential silo or as a standalone function when in reality it's very much embedded more and more now to uh, different operations. And so you speak with a with an expert locally. I think that the favorable outcome is you may have a different perception of reality which uh, can surprise you uh, and getting that insight from local council can really provide the best source of information to make better and more educated decisions. Absolutely agree with Daniel. I think trusted advisors, be that legal, accounting, tax are absolutely key, making sure they're aligned to the uh, the parent company interest rather than the local company interest, I think is important. I think I'd just add one other thing and I've seen issues arise here over the years and that is the the people that are recruited. I think the the choice and the uh, trustworthiness of the people on the ground in the UK is absolutely key. Um, and where that goes wrong, I think it can actually sour everything. So uh, making sure that time is spent recruiting the right key senior employees in the UK, I think is absolutely vital. Brilliant. And that's it for today. Thanks to Brian and Daniel for what I thought was a really insightful and thought-provoking conversation. If you want to hear more about what we've discussed today, then head to erwinmitchell.com forward slash UK Powerhouse, and you can follow the link to our latest report. Thanks for listening to the Earl Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then please do join us for our next episode. And in the meantime, stay safe.